Hello, Criminal Injustice listeners. My name is Josh Rollerson, producer on the show. I'm here today because it's my privilege to bring you something really special on criminal injustice. We're going to take a look inside what I think is going to be one of the, the most celebrated and most important books published about criminal justice this year. And that book is A City Divided, Race, Fear, and Law in Police Confrontations. It tells the story of Jordan Miles. He was a high school student who was severely beaten outside of his home by three plainclothes Pittsburgh police officers back in 2010. The book, A City Divided, examines various conflicting accounts of what happened that night, accounts from Jordan Miles, who was black, and from the three white police officers. It follows multiple court cases that resulted from the confrontation. It explores uh, the coverage in local media of these events and their impact on our community. It situates it all within a national context of racially inflected police violence and everything that goes along with it. Now, I've talked up this book, and uh, probably by now you've guessed the name of its author. It is one that's familiar to our listeners, and it is David Harris, professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law, host of the Criminal Injustice Podcast, who has graciously uh, let me take over the microphone this week in order to to interview him about this exciting new book. David, thanks so much for inviting me to uh, to have this conversation with you, and uh, let me be the first to offer you my congratulations. Oh, Josh, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be talking with you about it. I can't imagine any other way uh, to start my conversations about this book. I can't wait to get into it. Uh, before we do, though, should take care of a little housekeeping, let people know that the official rollout event for the book, at least for our friends in the Pittsburgh area where criminal injustice is based, is going to be on January 14th. And as we're releasing this episode, you still have a few days to grab tickets or RSVP for that event. Uh, it's 6 p.m. at the Pittsburgh Arts and Lectures Series taking place at the Carnegie Museum Lecture Hall, 4400 Forbes Avenue. This is free. It's open to the public. You just have to uh, reach out and let them know you're going to attend. You can do that by visiting the Pittsburgh Arts and Lectures website. We'll give the address, and of course, we'll include it in the episode description on this episode. For listeners outside of Pittsburgh, we're also going to have info uh, later on on upcoming book talks scheduled for New York City, for Washington, D.C., Philadelphia. We'll be talking about that at the end of this segment. But let's uh, let's get into the book, shall we? Great. David, how did you first learn about the Jordan Miles case? What made you want to write about it? Well, Josh, the Jordan Miles case happened just about two years after my family and I moved to Pittsburgh. Uh, it, it's no surprise when people move to Pittsburgh who aren't from here, uh, they become big fans right away. I mean, we just love the city. Uh, my family and I settled in here quickly. Uh, this incident unfolded less than two miles from where I live, and uh, it caught everybody's attention once it became public, uh, mine as well as everybody else's. And so we were all kind of watching this unfold in real time in our city, watching the reactions uh, to the news when it came out in the media, uh, the the the, uh, the startling kind of uh, uh, feeling that people had that this kind of thing could happen where they lived, uh, the demonstrations that followed, all of it was right here where we were all living, working, going to school. So it was not something you could ignore. And I began to follow it as a person with very deep interest in criminal justice issues. I was already working here on those issues, uh, teaching about them at the University of Pittsburgh. And uh, so when I really got into seeing what was going on in the case, at some point uh, I began to realize that this was a story that really didn't need to be told. And as I watched the case unfold through the investigations, through the trials, 
uh, it exhibited all of the problems that I'd been teaching and writing about for years and years. I got to know many of the people involved, uh, and at some point I just said to myself, I've got to do this. Uh, if I don't do it, maybe nobody will, but it's too important to let go. Well, let's set the stage for the story a bit by painting a picture of where it occurred. You mentioned that the location of this incident was very close to where you live. People that know Pittsburgh know that it's one of these sort of eastern cities where, you know, there's a lot of segregation, and from yes. one block to the next, you can see really stark differences in the way that people live. So this incident took place in the neighborhood of Homewood. That's right. Talk about Homewood. What kind of a community is it, and what what is it important to know about Homewood and its history to understand this case? Homewood, when this happened, Homewood was almost entirely an African-American community, uh, it was a place uh, of uh, consistent high homicide uh, statistics. Uh, many of the murders that happened in Pittsburgh happened in Homewood or in, very, or in communities very nearby Homewood, adjacent to it. Uh, there was a fair amount of crime and disorder. Now, Homewood had not always been like this. Uh, one of the things I did in the book was to look back in uh, the neighborhoods, even recent histories, recent as the 1950s and 60s. It was a prospering, diverse neighborhood where everybody got along, everybody went to high school together, uh, but things changed uh, for the worse in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And by the time we get to the 2000s, uh, it is highly segregated, it is very poor, and there's a lot of crime. And that's what set the stage for this whole incident. Uh, because of the amount of crime there, the Pittsburgh police often concentrated different types of enforcement efforts in Homewood and in similar areas in the city. And that's what brought the three officers in plain clothes in an unmarked car into Homewood to be patrolling uh, in basically the dead of night, 11 o'clock at night in uh, January of 2010. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what, what happened? Let's walk through the story step by step. You open the book in a really interesting way by presenting back-to-back uh, more or less as given, the varying accounts, and really there are yes. two big stories that are told, one from the perspective of the police and the other from Jordan's perspective, and you put them together side by side. Walk us through those narratives, versions. Well, in both versions, Jordan leaves his house about 11 o'clock at night. Uh, his, he lives with his mother and his siblings. He leaves his house because his grandmother lives around the block from him, and because the house was crowded with all the kids, uh, he had a bedroom at his grandmother's house, so it was not an unusual thing for him to leave his house. Where things uh, get bad is after he leaves, it's no more than about 30 or 40 seconds until a confrontation is underway. But the stories really diverge in some important ways. The story the officers tell is that they were on patrol looking for guns and drugs in their unmarked car when they saw a man standing up against the side of a house. In order not to alert him, they drove down the block, turned their car around. By the time they got back to that spot, the man was coming out to the street. They stopped him. They identified themselves as police, uh, but they instantly saw that he had all the trademark signs of having a weapon. His pocket was hanging down really low on the right side. He was covering it, uh, other things like that. Uh, after answering just a few questions, the man tried to run, and they went after him. And very shortly, I mean, this was all of 90 seconds into this whole thing, uh, there was a real knockdown, drag-out fight happening on the ground uh, in the yard of a house just a few down from where Jordan lived. 
this fight continued for about a minute. Uh, while it was going on, the police were, uh, they said, very much afraid that he was going to get that gun in that pocket, that he was going to pull it out, and he was going to shoot. And they made every effort to subdue him. Uh, it took all that these three men had. They were all large men, all well-trained. Uh, eventually, uh, they got one cuff on him, but he managed to pull that hand away and towards that pocket. And when he did that, uh, that was the ultimate moment of fear. And one of the officers uh, just started raining blows on the man's head. And that finally subdued. They got the cuffs on him. And then when they brought him up to search him, they didn't find a gun. There's no gun in his pocket. Instead, they said they found a bottle of Mountain Dew. That was the story from their point of view. They put him under arrest. They charged him with some felonies for assaulting them. And uh, off he went in a police wagon, and he was taken to jail first to stop at the hospital. Uh, from Jordan's point of view, the story was very different in some very key respects, but also a lot of similarities. He left his house. It was 11 o'clock. He was going to his grandmother's house, and all of a sudden, this car just rolled up on him. It was unmarked, didn't look like a police car, and just like that, three large men kind of tumbled out of the car all at once, started yelling at him, where's the gun, where's the drugs, where's the money, over and over. He says they never identified themselves as police, and he was terrified. He thought he was about to be robbed. He knew there was crime in the neighborhood. Uh, he'd seen it with his own eyes, and uh, he ran. They all agree on that. He ran, uh, very quickly fell on the ice, and uh, he was uh, set upon by these three large men, he says, who beat him very badly. He struggled to, to try to get up, to try to turn his face so he could breathe, um, uh, and uh, when he struggled, uh, he was finally hit on the head with a very heavy blow, and that stopped him. And he said he thought uh, that uh, he, his words were, this was my moment to die. He knew that he was going to die. He figured he would be robbed and thrown in the trunk of the car, and that would be that. But then, just moments later, while he was sitting there, now in handcuffs, because he had not been cuffed before, uh, a police wagon rolled up. He thought that the wagon was there because the neighbors had called the police, but then the men in uniforms got out and talked to the three men who had jumped on him. That was the first he said he knew they were police. Um, he was taken to jail. Uh, not before some other interaction, uh, and uh, he remained there the rest of the day, uh, pardon me, he remained there the rest of the night and most of the following day until he was bailed out. I'm curious about why you took this approach. You, you juxtapose these two very different versions of the story at the beginning. It, yes. it becomes clear over the course of the book that many, many things were, we probably will never really know the truth of, of what actually happened, but at the same time, it's impossible to read these two stories back to back and not see the glaring contradictions between them. What was your, your purpose in, in presenting it that way? Uh, that's really a great question, and it was, I think, the one that I wrestled with early on the most. Uh, there are only four people in this whole world who know the truth, for sure, and that's Jordan and the three officers. And they just tell these very different stories in some very important respects. Did the police identify themselves or not? Or did they just run out of the car yelling, where are the guns and the drugs? Uh, did uh, Jordan have something heavy in his pocket or not? He says not only did he not have a gun, he didn't have a Mountain Dew bottle either. And th those questions are very hard to resolve for certain. We, f we find lots of clues about that along the way, and they're all in the book. 
Um, but I thought it was important to give full credit to both as a matter of just exploring what was important because to me what struck me fairly early on about these two stories was not so much what they were different about, excuse me, was, was, was not so much how they were different, and that definitely counts, but how they were the same. And how they are the same is that this young man leaves his own house. Within 30 seconds, he encounters three police officers. For reasons that we can debate, he decides he's going to run. And there's a fight in which both the young man and the police officers say they fear for their lives. And those things tell us, I think, a lot more about the general problem of why this happens, why it continually happens, not just in Pittsburgh, but in so many places around the country, and what we need to look for as the root causes of this, and maybe what we can do about it. So uh, I certainly don't think that uh, the, the, the differences in the story don't count. I don't mean that at all. Uh, I think the reader can read the book and see the facts and decide for him or herself what the truth of what happened, how, how that fight started. But the more, the deeper questions involve why, right. why did that happen? And to really get at those questions, you first have to kind of paint a picture of who these people are, yep. where they come from, why they are the way they are, and, the, and how that might explain the way they react to these different circumstances. Uh, let's get to know the characters a little bit more, uh, starting with, with Jordan Miles. What, uh, what, what can you tell us about him? What sort of a, a kid was he? I, I, I say kid, he had just, just turned 18 the day yeah, before, so a young man. Yes. What can you tell us about Jordan? Jordan was a high school student. He was a senior. He was getting ready for college. He was beginning to think seriously about his life. He was uh, a student at Pittsburgh's Creative and Performing Arts High School, or as we call it around here, Kappa, where he was in the orchestra and he played the viola. He'd been playing the viola since he was a young kid. Um, and he uh, had made the honor roll in three of his last four semesters, uh, come from being a sort of so-so student who didn't care about school to one who was more focused on his future. He had a scholarship waiting for him, an admission at Penn State, where he planned to go in the fall. Uh, as far as he says, and as far as I've been able to find out, he had no contact, no record with police, no, never got in trouble. He was just that, not that kind of kid at all. And he'd had his birthday just the day before. He was 18, like you said, and, uh, you know, to, to, for every, to every account, he was a kid on an upward trajectory. Things were going well for him. Uh, the family was uh, uh, together in that house. He had a brother who was in military service who was not living there, but the rest of the family was. And uh, his grandmother lived right around the block. So uh, it was not a great neighborhood in terms of public safety, but uh, their own block, their homes uh, to them felt like a real haven, very safe place. Uh, it was not uh, an area that, uh, you know, in their own homes where they feared for their safety or things happening to them. Uh, Jordan was, by all accounts, uh, and I, of course, interviewed him for this. I, I met him. He's a very shy, very quiet sort of person. Every, everybody I talked to about him before this happened said the same thing, and I've experienced the same thing since. Uh, uh, not a person who's loud or, or anything like that. Um, and, uh, you know, his, uh, he was really ready for the last part of high school and to move on. And not to put too fine a point on it, but not the sort of person who, if you knew him at all, that you would, um, you would not jump to the conclusion that these officers apparently jumped to when they saw what they thought must be a weapon in his pocket. Uh, not if you knew him. No. I mean, he's just not that, 
that kind of a kid. I mean, knowing that we can't really know any person for definite and every dark secret they have, um, you, you just wouldn't have thought that of this kid. One of the details that makes this story kind of poignant is how young Jordan is when, when the event happens. But what struck me also is that the, the three officers involved were pretty young men, too. Tell us about these three guys where they came from, what brought them to the Pittsburgh Police Bureau. Yeah, they are young. All three of the officers uh, were young. They were all under 40. They were all in their first decade, I think, as police officers. They had not been police officers terribly long. They were all given this very special assignment, having applied for it. They'd all been patrol officers, but then the special assignment to the unmarked car in plain clothes, the so-called 99 car, that was the call sign, 3599, so they called them 99 cars, uh, was a very plum assignment because they were not out there giving traffic tickets. They were out there doing uh, very specialized work uh, and were picked for the assignment uh, by their supervisors. Uh, one of them had a record of taking a lot of guns off the street. All of them were uh, physical fitness uh, informed people. Uh, uh, one of them did a lot of physical training on his own and was even uh, uh, moving toward being a, an instructor at the police academy in uh, defensive tactics, uh, so-called you know hand-to-hand fighting. So they were all officers who enjoyed and wanted the uh, action on the street. That was the essence of why you'd want that assignment. And they all applied for it, and they all got it. And they went in expecting to see certain things and encounter certain situations, and that largely kind of informed their behavior. Well, I suppose that's a fair conclusion. You know, if, you, if you're out there looking for the behavior associated with having uh, narcotics, selling narcotics, or, or holding guns, it is natural to look for the behaviors associated with that. One of them had even had a special training course in recognizing the behavior of the armed individual. So, uh, you know, we're all accustomed to the idea that what we, what we expect to see, we, we are apt to see. When people are out and they're looking for a certain type of behavior in the dark, under uh, less than ideal conditions, uh, perhaps it's easier to, to wonder when you see somebody if they have those behaviors. Kind of as an aside, and I only raise it because this is a theme that comes up a lot on criminal injustice, mm-hmm. and it's it's one that I, I think you wrote a whole book about, and that is the sort of validity of various ostensibly scientific or empirical methods and approaches in law enforcement and prosecution. What is the basis? How much research has gone into what these officers are taught about, like, the characteristics of a person carrying a weapon, which they you know, seemingly took as gospel? Is there anything to that? Well, it's a very good question. And while I was researching the book, I knew that that officer had gone through that specialized training uh, given by that former ATF uh, individual. I could find no studies of it at all. doesn't mean it hasn't been. I can just tell you I couldn't find any. And that's not an unusual thing to find certain kinds of law enforcement tactics uh, taught and retaught and even accepted as gospel, but never validated in any kind of a rigorous way. Uh, it works because we do it, and it seems to work most of the time. Would be, except when it doesn't. Except when it doesn't. So uh, I was interested at one point in actually seeing or experiencing that training myself. I was never able to make that happen as part of my research in the book. I've done other things like that in the past, uh, 
uh, get myself tased, put myself in other kinds of training. This I was never able to do because it's just not something that you can kind of call up and apply for anywhere. But I never did find any evidence that this had been tested in a rigorous way. In some of my other work uh, that I've published, uh, we looked at some data, my co-author and I, from police stops in Philadelphia, and we focused at one point on situations in which police officers stopped and frisked people to, uh, because they, they said, well, we saw a bulge in the clothing that told us the person had a weapon. And they were accurate in less than 1% of those cases, which I thought was stunning. Because if there's any one thing you're going to want to be sure about and want to be accurate about, it would be that. Uh, and yet the, uh, the, the deep experience and these tools, whatever they happen to be, don't seem to provide a lot of accuracy. So with an accuracy rate that low, it sort of raises the question then, like, what is informing the assumptions that get made if it's not based on, you know, science or a rational assessment of the situation? Why is that conclusion the one that officers seem to jump to? Well, it's not maybe based on science in the sense that it has been scientifically validated, but I think they would probably tell you that it is based on rational processes and thinking because uh, they do use that as a way of looking for people, and sometimes they do find weapons. So uh, in their minds, it is not irrational at all. Uh, there is no way to look through the clothing uh, a la x-ray vision or something unless you have very advanced technology. It's something I wrote about years ago that never really panned out. X-ray vision didn't pan out? X-ray vision for police was uh, a part of the title of my article, <laughs> believe it or not. Uh, got published and everything. But failing that, you are relying on uh, a combination of intuition and informed experience. So I would not say that that technique is probably always wrong. What I would say is that there's no, there's no validation of it in a scientific or rigorous way that would tell us it's right in so many percentage of cases or that, it is, uh, uh, that they are performing this, using this tactic uh, based on science. Maybe putting aside its efficacy in the field, in police work, this approach, to, to me, what's interesting about it is the psychology of it. And I was fascinated to read that at least one of these officers to this day maintains, he is 100% certain, Jordan had a gun. Oh, yes. They didn't find a gun on him. They searched the whole area. No gun was found. As we get to know Jordan, it becomes hard to believe that he ever would have had one. And yet, this belief is I mean, if you take the officer's words at face value, unshakable. Well, you know, people tend not to change their minds about things they really deeply believe. Uh, we know this in today's world maybe more than ever, uh, that when new facts come along, people tend not to revise their views. This, of course, uh, maybe shows up most when we talk about social or political views. But when you have been in a situation in which you believed you were in a life-and-death struggle, the uh, presence of the gun being, being the key factor, the fact that you didn't find it doesn't mean it wasn't there. And that would be a hard belief to give up, I guess. Uh, it hasn't, that hasn't ever been a situation that I've gone through myself, but they hold to that belief because they believed it at the time, it motivated them greatly, and then once proceedings start in the legal system, 
it becomes almost impossible to envision that they would give that up. I said in the book that there were other things that could have been done to perhaps find that gun. Uh, it was a snowy area. They did look through the snow. It was night. They could have come back. There are special units that come out with bright lights. There are dogs that can be called in situations like this. It's not a requirement, but the department had dogs that would search for firearms. None of that was done. And yet the conclusion is, as you say, unshakable. Well, that in itself is interesting that more effort maybe wasn't put into recovering this weapon that was supposedly there. You relate how the officers seemingly, they're surprised when this becomes a huge issue. They sort of, yes. it's sort of all in a day's work is, is almost the attitude so that maybe if they had anticipated this was going to be a national news story, maybe they would have spent some more time digging around in the snow for that for that weapon. But again, what's interesting to me is the fact that it didn't really cross their mind that they would ever really have to prove their, their version of events. No. Um, it's It seemed like just a regular day at the office. I mean, you should excuse the expression. They have cases like this all the time. And why would they think that this one would be different? And this one might not have been different, but for the fact that when uh, Jordan was released from the jail, uh, his mother, uh, not satisfied with whatever medical care he may have had at that point, and seeing his grotesquely swollen face, took him to another medical facility and took pictures of how he looked. And when that hit the media, that really changed things. That made people react. It's not clear without those pictures we would even be here talking about this, that we would know the name Jordan Miles, but know it we do. And it, it kind of foreshadows what happens in the following years when yes. ubiquitous cell phone video of th these incidents suddenly is just everywhere we turn. Uh, it's, the, it's the image that makes it real to people. Yes, that's right. And I had more than one police officer I interviewed, some of whom would go on the record and others of whom would not, say to me, uh, no pictures, no case. None of this would ever have happened without those pictures. So going beyond just sort of the impact of seeing this image of this disfigured face on this young man and taking in the broader context, what is it about this case that resonated so much with this community? Why did it hit Pittsburgh so hard to the point that, you know, we're still talking about it 10 years later? Well, a number of different things. I mean, number one, it's not a pretty thing, but so often victims get blamed to some extent. You know, police will say, well, they arrested this guy and he had a record as long as your arm, and he was up to no good and so forth. And yes, he suffered some injuries, but, uh, you know, people being what they are, they just don't take notice as much when it's a person who was engaged in criminal activity. Now, it's not right uh, to injure people uh, without reason, no matter what they're doing. But uh, it's just a fact of life that people regard this kind of uh, confrontation, this kind of struggle uh, and these, uh, the injuries that we're seeing much differently when they find out what kind of a person it is. One of the things from the old Giuliani playbook when he was the mayor of New York was when uh, New York City police were caught in a bad situation, maybe killed somebody who was not a bad guy, uh, suddenly the person's juvenile record would leak out and the mayor he's would no be angel, talking about right? it. He's no angel, right? Yeah, he's no angel. What do you, you know, what's the problem? Here you had a young man who had an unblemished life. 
I mean, he was a viola player, hmm. for God's sake. He was a good student. He was, uh, you know... Not, he was, not like a big, intimidating-looking fellow, either. No, he was 150 pounds soaking wet. And these were all fairly big police officers. And that's another thing I think that people found kind of puzzling. How did it take three very large, well-trained men to subdue a very small young guy uh, who was not a big muscle man? And... All of these things together, I think, really struck the public generally and public officials. We had the mayor talking about it, all kinds of people talking about it, really kind of flabbergasted as to how this could happen. There was a detail from the police report that you include in the book that really kind of blew me away. From the officer's account, one of Jordan's hands is is in a cuff. He's trying to get the other hand cuffed. Jordan gets his hand loose and is uh, sort of flailing around, and they interpret that as he's going for his gun. There's three guys on top of him. He's essentially pinned down on, on the, mm-hmm. the, the snow and the ice, arms behind him, and the officers respond by punching him in, you know, about the head and neck, right? And the reason given for yes. this, as opposed to, like, you know, trying to get the other arm that's that's loose is, well, if we hit him in the head, he will use his arm to try and defend himself. He'll, he'll protect his face, and that way he won't be able to get to his gun. Is that is that a technique that officers are actually trained in? It is, in fact. I don't know about hitting in the head in order to do that, but when officers want compliance, they will, uh, in a struggle like this, they will use uh, the, the tactic of hitting the person in other parts of the person's body in order to attract the person's hands to that area, to to get them to try to protect themselves. Uh, The hitting in the head uh, is especially dangerous, and the officers were later criticized for that, that uh, in certain situations, uh, striking heavy blows to the head amounts to deadly force. But when they got to the point of believing, according to the officers, that uh, Jordan had pulled his hand away from the guy on top of him to get to the pocket with the gun, and that officer calls out he's going for it, they now believe that he is inches from pulling out a firearm and shooting one or more of them. And that, in their minds, tactically, however else you want to look at it, justifies the blows to the head. And that is what finally subdues him. So they feel like they did the right thing. These are tactics that are taught. What officers are taught is to neutralize the threat, whatever it is, uh, however they have to do it, to go one step farther than the person they are facing in order to stop the person and get compliance. Now, is that an example of something that you see come into practice more and more over the last few decades? As you chart in the book, law enforcement sort of philosophy and policy Mm -hmm. evolves sort of in tandem with the way that the Homewood neighborhood as proxy for any number of other communities across the country that are similar is sort of deteriorating economically and Mm -hmm. socially and becoming more and more segregated and poor. At the same time this is happening, there's this new sort of militarization, this warrior mentality in law enforcement. What what you're describing is real. Um, Over the last few decades, we've seen not only the militarization of police, and I think probably most listeners are familiar with that. You can think of the episode we did with Jonathan Momolo from Princeton where he talked about the militarization of police, but also this idea that police are warriors, that they are out there fighting a war. Now, we've heard the term war on drugs and war on crime. This is almost something more literal. The idea here is that 
uh, everything out there is dangerous, that every encounter with any civilian is potentially a lethal encounter. Uh, as one of the officers uh, said in some of his testimony, I believe everybody has a weapon and is dangerous until proven otherwise. Uh, and that kind of mentality, even though it's not true in you know, the vast, vast majority of encounters with civilians, that kind of mentality le has led police into this idea that they are fighting a war, that they are the sheepdogs, they like to say, protecting the sheep against the constant evil presence of lethal predatory wolves. I mean, it really does come down to these kind of metaphors and some of the training. And that's very dangerous because when you think you're fighting a war, then force is, is maybe much more likely to be resorted to. And uh, the people around you aren't wearing uniforms. You can't tell which army they're in. So anybody could end up on the wrong end of that. Uh, it could be a person who's actually selling drugs. It could be a Jordan Miles. And, uh, you know, in a war, there are casualties. There's an acceptable level of collateral damage. All of those things are not what policing should be about. And yet that is clearly the way we've drifted in policing over the last 20 years. Let's pivot a little bit and talk about your process in putting this together, since sure. I've enjoyed sort of watching you from a distance as you've worked mm -hmm. on this project over the last couple of years. Yeah. I started by asking you where the idea came from. Let's pick it up from there, and, and uh, starting with the research phase, I guess. Where did you begin? What did you, what did you find out? Well, when I got very interested in this, uh, it was about the time that the first civil trials were happening. So at that point, uh, when I had decided to really do something about it and not just watch it, um, the investigations of the police officers by both the federal government and the state district attorney here in our county had already fizzled out. There were no charges. There were no internal charges either against the police officers. They weren't disciplined. They were put back on the job. And the, the turn then was into the civil justice system. And I looked up one of the lawyers who had been involved in the civil case, the first civil trial. And uh, I went to his office and I said, look, I'd really like to, want, number one, interview you to know what you think about the case. But number two, would you, could you lend me maybe copies of your court documents, your depositions or things like that? I'll uh, leave you a deposit. I'll leave you my driver's license, whatever it takes, uh, and I'll go copy it and I'll bring it back to you. I promise you'll, you won't miss anything. And he looked at me and he said, well, uh, you know what? I got a complete set of them electronically. Why don't I just copy everything for you? <laughs> and I that said, helps. you know, my eyes kind of went open, I'm sure. And I kind of said, oh, okay. <laughs> Sounds like a good idea. And within a few days, I had a trove of documents I could not have dreamed of. So I basically had all the materials just given to me. So there's all the evidence presented in court, all everything in, from discovery, all in one yes. bundle for you. Everything in one big And he was not the only person to do that along the way, which really kind of surprised hmm. me. So when you have things like that just kind of fall in your lap, and then I began to, uh, I began to just think, well, maybe this is really what I'm supposed to be doing. And uh, I went out and I began to talk to individuals who'd been involved in the case, uh, Jordan himself, uh, his mother, many other people, and I found almost all of them willing to talk and, and be patient with me and uh, allow me to uh, interview them at great length. With and, the notable exception of the officers. That's right. I did try to get the officers uh, uh, for interviews, all three of them. 
uh, being a lawyer myself, uh, of course, I followed process, and I went to their lawyers and asked them each individually, told them I'd like to interview their clients, um, would be a great help to me in the project. They, by the way, all the lawyers talked to me, every one of them, both sides. Uh, that was not a problem. Uh, but I told the officer's lawyers I'd love to do that, and uh, no response. So I wrote to them. I you know, made it as formal as I could. I made another request, and uh, I, it didn't end up happening. Uh, and that was, uh, that was a loss from my point of view, but it is perfectly within their rights not to talk to me. I don't have to talk to anybody. Here's the thing, though. With the material I had from the court proceedings uh, and, and everything else, they were already on the record right. uh, multiple times, all three of them, describing exactly what happened, how they felt, what their backgrounds were, what brought them to that point, what they were thinking in the moment. Uh, and when I read through those things, I thought, you know what? Their story is really here. And I wouldn't expect it necessarily to get different if I sat down in front of them and turned on a tape recorder. So with that, I decided I could do the project because if you can't get their side of it, uh, I think that is a problem. But their side was there. They had had every opportunity and put it out there, and I felt, well, okay, I could go ahead. Did anything in this process, any, anything you, you turned up along the way, uh, surprise you or, or change your thinking? How did your sort of views evolve over the course of, of this investigation? Well, I think when I started, uh, I, was, I was probably of a mind that the most important thing was to determine what happened in those few moments. And like I said at the beginning, as time went on, I began to realize, I mean, there was no way to ever know for sure. There were three people saying one thing and one person saying another, and nobody else was there. And there were many clues as to what happened, but nothing that I found was definitive. And it began to dawn on me that the, the thing that would be useful in telling the story would be to show how the system treated this case, how the investigations ran what the legal standards, what impact those had on whether somebody was charged or not, what the rulings on evidence did. And those led me to the conclusion that what this case really came down to, whether we know what happened in those moments or not, were all down to the fear on both sides of that confrontation and also the racial dynamics. And that was a deeper story that I think connected to everything we've seen in the last, you know, five-plus years since Ferguson, we've all been aware of as a nation, less so before that. This was four years before that. And it's all there. It is all there. And when, when I kind of realized that, I thought, that's really what the book is about. It's telling the story of the case. It's putting it in that larger context, whether we can figure out exactly what happened in those moments or not. We're no stranger at this point in our civic discussion to issues of race. Whether you want to call it uh, bigotry or implicit bias, uh, it's, uh, it's been discussed plenty. But what I found in the research as I went through many, many uh, volumes of social psychology and things like that were that race has very special resonance and very dangerous potential in situations just like the ones that Jordan and the three officers found themselves in. 
I mean, it's so well established, the evidence goes back decades, that uh, when people see a black person, their stereotypical associations are danger, crime, and violence. Right there, you've got a lot to worry about. You go deeper into the newer research, and you find remarkable work, work by Jennifer Eberhardt and Philip Goff, both of whom I've had the privilege of meeting. One of their studies just fascinated me, that when they showed a black face to a person, any person, it turned out that that person was able to pick out the image of a gun from a degraded image faster and more precisely than without the priming of the blackface, a measurable difference. Uh, another thing they found in this study, when a person sees a blackface, thoughts of crime, fear, and danger occur. When a person is looking for crime and danger, when they're attuned to those things uh, as part of their job or their thought process, they more readily focus on black faces in a crowd, wherever. This, they called their piece uh, of research race as a visual tuning device. It tunes the human mind to look for things. Um, so the, the connection between race, fear, crime, and danger is very, very deep. You put this together with the presence of fear. And fear exists on both sides of interactions between police officers and African Americans. Let's start with police officers. Police officers are brave and courageous. They do physically courageous things that you and I wouldn't do for twice what they make, and they do them with frequency. I'm not saying they're not brave, but being brave does not mean there is no fear. How do you deal with the fear? What do you do with the fear in training and in police culture? And unfortunately, along with this idea of the warrior thing that we were talking about before, what's happened over the last 10 to 20 to 30 years is that police training and police culture have turned to this warrior idea as a way of dealing with fear. Fear is present in interactions with, uh, with people that they meet all the time because the training that police go through constantly emphasizes that every interaction with a civilian can turn lethally dangerous in a heartbeat. It's like that, that quote I gave you before from one of the officers in this case. I believe everybody is armed and dangerous until I see otherwise. That's just not true. But when you go in to every interaction, every car stop, every everything, with that mentality, everything becomes spring-loaded. Everything can go wrong quickly. You are ready to find things dangerous before maybe the evidence is there. And you can see how quickly things escalate when they begin to go a little bit wrong. When they go just a bit sideways, that's all it takes. Mm -hmm. It's all it takes. With that constant pounding on the idea of lethal danger is everywhere, we have police officers becoming hypervigilant and seeing danger all the time. You combine this with a, a, a really unique part of police training now. You know, we talk about videos being so ubiquitous. They're everywhere. But for years, police training has used dash cam videos collected over many, many years of terrible incidents involving officers getting assaulted. 
I mean, so dash cams, I mean, those go back into the 80s. I can remember when I was first in law practice, dash cams came on, and they can record an incident in front of the police car. We've all seen those. Um, but certain ones of these get shown over and over in police training. There's a kind of a canon of videos that are shown in police trainings, and they're all of police being assaulted, shot, and killed right in front of you. And these things get repeated and shown to cadets and recruits in every police department in the country virtually as a way of showing them. I mean, there are valuable lessons. Look how he was tactically deficient. This is what got the guy killed. But you're also learning, hey, this could happen to me anytime. And you kind of feel for these guys. Like, that's traumatizing it's to be terrible. exposed to that. Yeah, over and over and over. Now, it should also go without saying that there's video by the millions of times more of things going well, of interactions being diffused, of things just going along. But those don't make but the highlight reel. Those don't make the highlight reel. They don't get shown in the training. You put the, all this stuff together with that warrior idea, and the, the essence of the warrior idea trained by people like Lieutenant Dave Grossman, uh, who does his warrior training and private trainings. His, his videos are all over the place. The idea is the, the sheepdog is prepared at any time to use righteous violence to protect the sheep against the evil wolves. And you've got a recipe for disaster. And you combine that with a racial dynamic, things can go terribly, terribly wrong. Now, it's not only on the police side on the side of, of, of people of color. I mean, it can, people of, of any kind can fear police if they've had a bad interaction with them. But for people of color, this is a generational thing. These are, these are stories of, of, of being harassed, of rude treatment, of being humiliated, and worse, that come from grandpa, uncles, brothers, cousins, and themselves. For many of them, the writer Hannah Nicole Jones, I think, said it best, um, um, and I quoted her in the book. You know, white people, she said, basically, you live in a different world than I do. You know, I, I don't even think of calling the police many times because I know that they're a danger to me. And that's just so vastly different than the rest of us and how we think. So you have this fear on both sides of the interaction combined with these poisonous influences of race and it's almost a wonder it doesn't happen more. And at the same time, it's, it's ironic, too, that Jordan, up until the moment he's being bundled into the wagon, doesn't realize he's interacting with police officers. Like, you communicate pretty effectively reasons why an African-American person in an encounter with a police officer might have very good rational reasons to run the other way as fast as they possibly can. But in this case, uh, he thought he was being robbed. Yes. Uh, he, he encounters these three men who he says are screaming at him about guns and money and drugs, and he figures he's being robbed. He even offers, according to him, to go get his birthday money to give to them if they will let him live. I mean, that, that almost made me cry. Um, and he, um, uh, he, he does not know what's happening to him in his story, and... Um, uh, the, the, the tragedy of something like that is that it all happens so fast uh, that, uh, you know, he, he seems completely unaware. And yet, when the uh, officers are reinstated, there's a statement by the chief of police then, uh, Nathan Harper. He gives a news conference. He says, uh, since there are going to be no charges against the officers, I'm putting them back on the job. And he says, you know, I just wish that young people would understand when a police officer approaches them and they want to know, they want to ask a question, don't run away from them. We're not the enemy out here. 
And, you know, Chief Harper had been around a long time. He'd grown up in Pittsburgh. He was a black man. Yet the point of view from the street may be very different. That's what I learned. There's no guarantee that not being up to anything will save you from being mistreated uh, or worse. So it's easy, I think, for many people to say he should have just not run. If he hadn't run, we wouldn't be here. Well, true, I suppose. But you got to put yourself in his shoes. The world isn't the same for Jordan as it is for, say, somebody like me, uh, you know, older white man. So it's 10 years since this happened. Where have these characters' lives taken them in the, in the intervening years? What is Jordan Miles doing now? What are the three police officers doing now? Jordan Miles uh, lives in a neighboring suburb. He's married. Um, he did eventually go back to school, but he's really made his way by starting his own business. And he's been quite successful. You know, he's he's a person who uh, remains very positive about himself. Uh, has always said he does not want this one incident to define him. Um, the three officers, two of them are still on the Pittsburgh Police Department now in different roles. One of them left the police department in Pittsburgh and joined a police department in one of a neighboring one of our neighboring suburbs. Um, but they're all still in law enforcement. Those lives, I think, were altered, Jordan's very significantly, but the officers, too, by what happened on that night. This kind of an incident, even when it is not reported, even when nobody ever hears of it, even when a case remains obscure, we should keep in mind that this is a kind of life-altering thing for any civilian to have an encounter like this with police, and it can alter police officers' lives as well. The book is A City Divided, Race, Fear, and Law in Police Confrontations by Professor David Harris, just out. I want to remind people again, if you are in or near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, you can catch Dave's talk at Pittsburgh Arts and Lectures, January 14th, 6 p.m. We'll have all the information on the website. That's just the kickoff of an East Coast book tour that's going to continue. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got events scheduled at the uh, Brennan Center for Justice, January 16th in New York City. Doors open at 6, and the talk starts at 6.30. Also at uh, NYU Law School, this is the uh, Vanderbilt Hall in the Greenberg Lounge, 48 Washington Square South. And you can find more information on that on the Brennan Center's website. And again, we'll have uh, links to all of those on ours at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. David, once again, congratulations. It's an excellent book, and, and I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. I enjoyed it a lot, too. I can't think of anybody I'd rather talk to about it. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris, produced by Josh Rollerson, and supported by listener contributions. Go to patreon.com slash criminalinjustice to become a member. Find past episodes, show notes, and more at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.